We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have an esteemed guest today, been around the chess world for quite literally longer than I've been alive, and I am a middle-aged man. Uh, his name is Fred Wilson, and he most recently uh, got notoriety for becoming the oldest person ever to get the USCF National Master title. He's also been a chess bookseller for over 45 years. He's written books. He's currently number 26 on the uh, USCF over the age of 65 list and number number 26 and rising. So, Fred, thanks for coming on Perpetual Chess. Well, thank you. <clears throat> thank you for having me, Ben. Uh, I just have to correct one thing that you said. I am evidently the second oldest. Oh, really? Be, to, to, yes. Um, there was a fellow in New Jersey. Uh, his name escapes me. Um, uh <laughs> Jersey master who became a master at 71 like I did, but he was several months older. John Donaldson and I were able to determine that. But the real credit goes to a fellow named Oscar Shapiro who became a master at 74. 
and it's noted in Chess Life at the time, and they gave a game that he beat somebody. And Oscar was a dealer in rare music books and uh, manuscripts, and uh, later on he dealt a little bit in rare and out-of-print chess books. So Oscar did it at 74, and I did it at about 71 and two-thirds. And um, You should have uh, think- waited a couple years, Fred. <laughs> should have should have got uh, to twenty one ninety nine sat around and uh, <laughs> well I mean I you you, you I'd like to assume I would make it to seventy five but uh, my new goal is to be the oldest person <clears throat> uh, to go over twenty three hundred USCF uh, I I can tell you that I believe Andrew Cochran's father uh, forget his first name but he was a a, a Latvian master. He went over 2,200 at 68, and I think that same year he got to 2,300 when he started playing rated chess again. But I want to get to be the oldest person to hit 2,300, and I play about five, six times a year, so I think I have a shot. Okay. I know that you live right in the heart of New York, so I, wa- I know that you play actively. I wasn't sure how active. So five to six times a year for, new- for a New Yorker, that's, uh, that's a manageable amount. Well, largely I play at these tournaments uh, in Hackensack, New Jersey, uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, I'm not that personally comfortable at the Marshall. I, 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 it's a very popular club, and a lot of people play there. But um, I prefer what the, the setup is at these tournaments run by International Chess Academy, which is owned by Diana Tolman, a major teacher in Bergen County. And she holds these tournaments at the Bergen Academy High School which uh, are fantastic. They're, they're five times a year on Sundays. <clears throat> and the open section, meaning I believe over 1,800, is in the teacher's cafeteria, which no spectators are allowed, only players. There's a big supply of bagels, coffee, and whatnot, and there are two bathrooms that only we get to use, which I think you can appreciate yourself being a tournament player. So the rest of the tournament, a big scholastic and, and the under-16 or under-1800 sections are in the giant cafeteria, which is quite distant from where the, the more experienced players play. I was about to say the older players, but of course <laughs> half the players in the open section are between like 10 and 15, right. like everywhere else, right? For sure. Um, so that's, I, I, I played in about 15 of her tournaments. And I gained 149 rating points in about six, seven years. That's incredible. Uh, so I like, it's Damon 60, and I with a five second delay. And I've reached the point in my life where I know my openings. I'm a pretty good tactician for short term tactics. I co-wrote a bunch, about eight books on tactics with the late Bruce Alverston. and um, I'm willing to put in two hours of work or six hours in the day and take a bye in the first round and just be well-rested and play all day Sunday. And um, then afterwards uh, be ready to give a long, hard look, maybe several weeks' worth of, of looking on my own without an engine, as Carson Hanston, your last guest, recommended, uh, to figure out what should have happened or what could have happened. Okay, yeah. So the first thing, Fred, of course, that I do want to get into, and you just alluded to it, is how you did this. I mean, so it turns out that I I either misread or misremembered about your having the actual record 
for Oldest to Become a National Master. But obviously, it doesn't diminish the feat at all that you've gained uh, over 100 points um, at, and you're currently 72 years young. So what's, <laughs> what's your study regimen? I mean, you, you mentioned intense game review. Uh, do, you, do you study books? Are you doing tactics? Like, what's, what's your day-to-day regimen like for, for continuing to improve at chess? I study tactics every day, every single day. I got a ton of uh, practice related to my day job, which is teaching chess and selling chess books and writing books, uh, by doing all those books with Bruce Alberston, where I had to solve all of his contributions to those books. But even today, uh, I, I receive a, an Internet chess newsletter, which I enjoy very much, called Chess Today, edited by Alex Baboran, who's in Dublin. And every day that comes through with one or two combinations to solve, and I religiously always solve every day Baboran's puzzles. Uh, plus, um, occasionally I'll just grab a book. Uh, one of my favorite books is Blenders and Brancies by Mullen and Mo Moss, and it's an out-of-print paperback, a collection of, of tactics, mainly tactics that were missed by, by good players. So it's not common combinations. And I'll solve something out of that book. Now, the other part of my regimen is something I enjoy, and this is, I do not consider it work, and I've been doing this for like 30, 35 years. And I can do it because I, working for myself, I, I can create my own time frame. I get up in the morning, feed the cat, and I will play over games for an hour to two hours with one or two cups of coffee almost every day. I enjoy playing over games. I, uh, <clears throat> like Karsten Hansen said in your last show, that he writes best in the morning. I think I understand and think best in the morning with my coffee. So I, I don't consider it work, Ben. I, I, I'm, and I, I go through all kinds of sources. Yes, I'm looking for the openings I play, whether it's King's Indian or Four Nights game or the black side of double king pawn, which I've been playing my whole life. I answer E4 with E5. I play the King's Indian religiously. I play certain systems. But also, <clears throat> I look at all kinds of, 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 of games, either players I like or what to do on the black side uh, against the English, against the ready, against B3, so on and so forth. And um, it's not just looking at books. Although, for instance, I went through and highly recommend uh, Smearin's um, King's Indian Warfare. I learned a lot from that book, and it's basically a collection of his best games. It's not a, like a theory King's Indian book like Bolligan's book on the King's Indian. I found Smearin's, frankly, more useful to me. Uh, so I play over games from books, but I also recently I bought from a, uh, somebody who was downsizing his collection a whole bunch of bound years of British chess magazine. And I've been lugging home volumes from the 1980s and 1990s because there's a ton of games in there. And I find the King's Indian play by Mestel or Hebden or John Nunn, or I find four, a lot of Four Knights games, which is my favorite opening. It was very popular then, played by Nunn, Short, Chandler, and others. Um, I play over these games. And it, it, it kind of reminds me that I heard your interview with Carsten Hansen, and he said as a teenager, he played over every English opening he could find because he liked the opening. Well, uh, I try and play over every game 
between good players in the openings I play uh, just just to get a sense of where the pieces belong and to, to get some ideas that will come back to me when I am faced with this exact type of middle game. So I, I do a lot of study, Ben, but I, I don't personally consider it work. And I sometimes think if, you, if you're playing over games, I, I do it physically with, with a nice set and board. But even if I think it's better to see 3D than 2D, and so do many Russian teachers, the older ones, anyway. But if you consider it work and you, not, you don't enjoy playing over games, the players you like, the systems you play, maybe you should find another game. Yeah, or, well, or but do not, do not believe you're going to get any better at chess. Yeah, well, clearly you can't get better without studying. But I know that personally, I feel a little bit like this, and I'm sure some of our listeners feel like, okay, of course, like we all love chess. That playing over games is one of the things we we love most. But you know, if you're working and you have a family and stuff like that, like you know, the the time can just slip away. So to me, like in in a in a world where uh, money and family were not an object. What you're doing sounds like basically the perfect way to start a day. I, I love coffee and I love chess. So <laughs> I would love to just have a chess set in front of me and look at the games. But I think some people feel like uh, they just don't have the time, or at least it's not quite a high enough priority uh, with it, with the limited time that they have. But I do want to, um, I want to find out more about about your approach. So are you always using a physical chess set for the study or do you sometimes look at games on the computer? I will. Um, uh, I actually don't own an engine, just to get wow. that right off the bat. But, 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 of course, I will click through games <clears throat> uh, on the chess-based website that look interesting to me. Uh, I, uh, uh, and <clears throat> to just today, because I play the King's Indian, I clicked through and thought a lot about this game, a Wonder Liang. One with black against Praveen Balakrishnan, basically to win the U.S. Junior. I clicked through that entire game. And I can tell you I think Praveen was better for, for, for much of the middle game. And, and a wonder made a startling decision to give up his dark-squared bishop and make the whole middle game position really crazy. I thought the end game probably should have been drawn, but a wonder is clearly pushing, 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 and he finally pushes Praveen over the edge. But I clicked through that, and I probably spent 20, 25 minutes looking at that and being fascinated and understanding how ferocious and strong and resolved uh, a wonder is. And he will probably become uh, the next Jeffrey Zhang, if not the next Nakamura. Yeah, he's quite quite an impressive young talent. But in talent. other words, I clicked through this game. It was free. It's up there on the U.S. website on the article. Uh, I also clicked through a Clarissa Yip game. And I find her an exciting player. She's another Kings Indian player, too. Yeah, so one framing I think that, that chess players struggle with in terms of selecting their openings is as you get, you know, of course, the, the monsters of the chess world, the best players need to be well-versed in all openings. But for, you know, club-level players all the way up to to around the level where you and I are, I think people struggle with if they should be a fox or a hedgehog, if they should, you know, know a little bit about a lot of openings or know a lot about a few openings. And it sounds like you've definitely planted your flag in the, the latter category based on what you're saying about your, your enthusiasm for the King's Indian and the Four Knights. Is that, is that your philosophy? I think you're better off, ultimately, <clears throat> sticking with, with, with openings you enjoy, you think you kind of understand the middle games that result from them, and you can learn more and more and more and more about them. 
And uh, <clears throat> I, uh, <clears throat> I could give you a, a brief history of, of my opening career. It started out E4, and actually even King's Gambit. But like many young players, uh, the Sicilian drove me crazy. Hmm. And the Sicilian drove me away from E4. So uh, I started playing D4. I did that for like 25 years or so. And I, I, I had various funky systems, Petrosian system against the King's Indian, uh, Leningrad, uh, Nimzo Indian, uh, Bishop B5, G5 against the, the, the Gruenfeld. Everything seems to be a Bishop G5 is what I was playing. And I kind of um, plateaued, if you will, in between 2100 and 2149 or so. My high rating was 2189 uh, in about 1968. Uh, but, um, and then life intervened, as you point out, and wife, children, uh, house in New Jersey, commuting to my shop in New York City. Uh, I had a terrible result in one New Jersey tournament. I like to joke that uh, drawing with Glenn Peterson, the the, uh, the former great editor of Chess Life, made me give up chess for 10 years. <laughs> That's my joke that I have with Glenn, who's a friend of mine. Uh, so I, I didn't play for about 10 years. And my rating at that time was actually 1989. And I came back, I think, and I played uh, as kind of a, a hired mercenary in the, the, the great, well, I think it's the greatest tournament in the United States the U.S. amateur or world amateur team tournament in Parsippany that's run by Steve Doyle. And I came back and played on a team, and I went 4-1. I beat a master. I lost to an expert. I went over 2,000 again. Um, and um, th then eventually I started to, to, to look around to play. And I, Game in 30 was too fast, but uh, Game in 90 was okay, but I found Game in 60 I enjoyed. Now... Um, my openings, I also felt like I was in a rut. And I, I asked myself, why was I not playing E4? And the answer was really twofold. I didn't have a line against the Sicilian, most Sicilians, and I, I really didn't want to keep playing the King's Gambit. Well, somehow I had been playing over lots of Four Nights games from, from uh, both the older, olden times, from 1900 and 1914, and from the 1980s, and um, John Nunn wrote a book uh, on the Four Nights that's terrific, that's out of print now, New Ideas in the Four Nights, and uh, I, I practically wore that out. So I switched to, I started playing E4, just because that just felt more natural to me. And you're saying, what about the Sicilian? Well, against half the Sicilians, you see uh, Black's second move is D6. Well, against that, you can play D4, C takes D4, the Queen takes D4 Sicilian, the Makaganov or the Hungarian variation. I thought that's where you were going. <laughs> and um, uh, there's a pretty good coverage of it in Pete Tamboro's book, Opening for Amateurs. So I, either I recommended it to him or he recommended it to me. I can't recall, but um, I, I think we both kind of rediscovered it at the same time. And um, so, all right, I have a weapon uh, to, in the Sicilian for half the Sicilians. I, I find other ways to deal with Paulson and classical and, and accelerated dragons. And um, I, I just developed a repertoire that, that I kind of enjoyed, like against the French. I don't let people play the French. And you say, Ben, how's that possible? And I say, it's very simple. I play the exchange French and play pawn c4 on loop 4. And you're very often getting like a Queen's Gambit accepted position. 
And it's a wide-open game, and Black is okay if he or she knows what they're doing. But it's not a French anymore. It's, it's, it's a wide-open game where I have an isolated deep one but good development. So I, I've never lost with this. Seriously. Yeah. yeah, and speaking of uh, my interview with Karsten Hansen, that reinforces something that he and I highlighted in our conversation where he was saying the, the objective analysis at the Super Grandmaster level is really not that important, even up to even up to, to your level. If you know the system, I mean, the game's not just going to peter out to a draw just because it does with, with 2700s playing. Well, I thought he, he, I thought he was actually referring uh, <clears throat> with, with, uh, to... Something Hikaru said, uh, in the U.S. Championship, Akobian played the French defense against Hikaru Nakamura and against Fabiano, and he was crushed by both of them. And Hikaru, in the interview with Maurice afterwards, said, well, what does he expect? He's playing the French defense. But you notice Carson said, but if you want to play the French defense, you don't have to play 2700s. If you understand the middle games and enjoy it, keep playing the French defense. But I think that's what he was referring to, Ben. That at a certain level, you know, like over 2750, they look down on the French defense. But why, Ben, should you, I, or the average 18-1900 player care what they're looking down on? It doesn't lose by force. Yeah, and uh, as and again, uh, a few days ago, this is not the French defense, but the Pierce defense probably has an even worse reputation. And I don't know if you saw this game between uh, Mag- um, Maxime Vachir Legrave and Magnus Carlsen a few days back, where Carlsen beat him with black in the perk in a classical game. So I oh, mean, sorry, no, I did not, and yeah. I try and stay alert to what Magnus is up to because yeah. we know he doesn't play the most what. Kasparov would claim to be the most principled openings, but he's the strongest player in the world. So thank you for telling me, because I'm going to go find that. It's probably up on chest. Yeah, I mean, it was equalish out of the opening, and then it was a classic sort of Magnus grind in a rook end game. But it was, you know, it's it's inspiring stuff that the world's best player is able to just basically play anything. Well, I think what Magnus has in common with the greatest players of all time, I guess, uh, Kasparov, Fisher, Capablanca, Lasker, uh, uh, he, he knows, he, he does not feel fear. He fears no one. So, even positions, so what? And, and if, I think he even said somewhere, if you play uh, 50, 60 good moves and you draw, good for you. Right. But he doesn't feel like anybody's going to outplay him in even positions with, with especially many pieces. So it's, it's like that's what's re- really refreshing. You know that what Magnus was asked, who of all the uh, former world champions it would be most interesting for him to have played a, play a match against when they were at their peak, he did not say Gary. He said Fisher. Hmm. So that kind of tells us something, Ben, who he respects the most. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm not going to settle this debate, so <laughs> I won't even venture no, no, an opinion. No, but he's, he's telling us something. Yeah, no. Th- who, yeah. who he felt was like the most dangerous in all facets of the game, in the middle game, in the end game. Yeah. Thank Bobby. And I generally and, find... Uh, I generally find the argument about like which player was the farthest ahead of their peers. I find that to be sort of a, a, a compelling argument in terms of evaluating who the best was, but um, it's hard. The Fisher versus Kasparov argument is especially tough to settle because Fisher's peak was so brief, you know. So 
It's well, th- that argument is compelling, but it, it, it really kind of makes Fisher and Kasparov the strongest players. Uh, excuse me, Fisher and Karpov the strongest players of all time. So apparently, before Kasparov came along, there was a huge gap between Karpov and his peers. Even yeah. In and, yeah, but I guess... Know, I mean, there was a hundred gap between him and Spassky and about anybody else, but it was very, very brief. Um, I, I think the first among equals idea is... Is possibly most compelling now, except uh, I just hope Fabiano doesn't get sucked into the long multi-piece endgames against Magnus. Because hmm. I think the Magnus is maybe the one of the strongest players of all time in such a position. So, so you're rooting for Fabiano? Well, why not? I mean, I'm sure you. I'm sure you used to see him around the new. I'm sure you used to. I'm rooting for Fabiano because suppose we had an American chess champion. Yeah, it would be fun. I, lo- I like them both. <laughs> I, I also like the fact that just like again with Karyakin, you have two young men in their late 20s at the peak of their careers playing each other. I wish it was longer than 12 games. I wish they were allowed somehow to play a 20-24 game match so that stamina would become a part of it, but that losing one or two games early does not wipe you out. Yeah, it, yeah. I, it's I, unfortunately, I think with funding, it's and you know, people's attention spans being what they are, it's just just not practical. But it would be, I, I would be uh, better. Um, it would be fairer, I should say. Well, I mean, it's um, it, it should be a very exciting match. Uh, Fabiano completely earned it, and. Um, one hopes that it will find its way into some kind of American television. Maybe one of the ESPN channels will somehow decide to carry it. Um, that happened once about 15 years ago. That, 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 uh, that, that I think Yasser Maurice and another fellow, uh, the guy uh, who wrote uh, uh, a chess book, and the name escapes me, but I can tell you it was... Um, uh, no, not the chess artist. It was another fellow, and they were all on ESPN commenting on, uh, I think, a cup of Kasparov match, so it's even longer ago. Yeah, I, rem- I remember that. That was when Maurice was a fresh-eyed commentator. I mean, he's he's been great the whole time, but yeah, his his approach was quite unique at that time, the, the energy that he brought to uh to oh, announcing. Yeah. Like Black's point is going for a touchdown. Yeah, exactly. I almost yeah. fell off my chair. Right. That that was a great line. And um, okay, the the third commentator was Paul Hoffman, who wrote a book called. Oh, King of course, Stumper. yeah, I know Paul. And um, anyway. Uh, okay, so Fred, before we get into your book selling business, um, I do want to talk a little bit more about chess improvement. And for listeners, uh, just a, a quick aside, when we did the Adult Improver series with Andres uh, Crisdois, I know that that resonated with a lot of you. And when I reached out to Fred, my original thought was we would just talk about chess improvement, but he he's done so much in the chess world that this is going to be sort of like a, a teaser for the Adult Improvement series. And I hope that it's especially inspiring to my older listeners, but we're also going to do another one in the next month or two, uh, a proper one in the same sort of format as Andre Crisdois. But I do want to just flesh out your study routine a little bit more, Fred. Um, so you you 
analyze games in the morning, one to two hours. You do tactics every day. Now, when you do tactics, do you use some sort of trainer or do you work from a book or how, how do you select? I mean, you mentioned... Um, well, basically, nowadays, I just solve the tactics that, that come in, uh, the one or two combinations that are obviously brand new that come in on chess today. I, I, I subscribe to chess today. That's, that's an internet chess newsletter that comes out every single day from Ireland. And the strongest player in Ireland is Alexander Baburin. Uh, who, who was a former uh, Russian grandmaster, is now an Irish grandmaster. Um, uh, incidentally, by the way, just an aside for you, contact him and get him on your show. Yeah. He's funny. His English is perfect. He's articulate. He's, he's, a, he, he's a professional chess teacher in Dublin. He's, he's the main chess teacher in, in, in Dublin, running chess programs. And he once told me on my show, he only made one mistake when he started, just teaching and running programs for children. And I said, Alex, what was that? He said, I didn't charge enough. <laughs> okay, and for listeners, what Fred is referring to with his old show, we talk, Fred and I had talked about this uh, um, offline, is he used to have a show on the Internet Chess Club, the ICC, called Chess and Books with Fred Wilson, where he... Uh, you know, prior many years ago in the early 2000s, interviewed many esteemed guests. Uh, Fred, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about uh, the history of that show? Uh, that ran approximately five years. Um, going by my memory, it was about, I think, 2002 to 2007 or 2008. Uh, I actually won the Chess Journalist of the Year Award, the Fred Kramer Award. It kind of looks like a medieval cudgel with the marble mm-hmm. piece, pointed piece of stone for, for the year 2003 for my interviews on that show. I mean, at that time, I think I had Max Delugi right after he got out of the pokey where he was wrongly put in jail in Russia but because some business associates lied about him. And uh, that was a great interview. And I, I, I was interviewing. I had the same problem and responsibility you have been. I had to come up with a new guest every week. And it was about a 90-minute show. And I would review books verbally for 20, 25 minutes. I would read one commercial the best in chess all the time www.chesscafe.com hmm. and they would that was the commercial I used to read uh, so I can never forget it I dream about it and uh, then I would interview a guest they'd either be in my office or we would both be on the phone and be piped into a studio uh, run by a fellow named Tony Rook and um, it was broadcast uh, out over the ICC uh, originally, anybody could listen to it, but then uh, ultimately only ICC members could listen to it. And it was run live, and I had everybody from Kabbalah, Joel Benjamin, Larry Christensen, Michael Rose. Uh, I had, you had to sell it from Spain, Paco Vallejo. I had Aleskis from Spain. I even interviewed Anand when he was in oh, Lenaris. Wow. Well done, yeah. Fred. <laughs> um, so I, all these interviews were recorded and run all week long. Uh, from um, the, uh, God, what was it called? It was, it was not the ICC website. At that time, it, the fellow Tony Rook um, had FM, his own was that website broadcasting my show and some other things. Was it Chess FM? And, um, eventually it was purchased by ICC, and he became an employee of, of Internet Chess Club. So I did this for about five years. I had a falling out. I asked for my shows back. They said, no, I got a lawyer sent the letter, the registered letter, I got my shows back. Anyone out there knows a way for me to, to put them up, uh, some kind of a download, 
I have about 110 interviews, uh, including people who are no longer with us, sadly, like Alex Wojtkiewicz, great interview, and Victor Frias, a terrific interview. And, um, you know, fascinating. Arthur Biskire, at least two, two fascinating interviews. So um, the, the, the people who are my, my standbys, People I would go to an emergency. I couldn't get a new guest. Tended to be Lev Albert, John Watson, who you've used at least once or more than once. Watson did something similar to what I did afterwards for ICC, and um, I also used John Donaldson, um, John Fedorovich, tremendous, funny, million stories. Uh, Salters, Joel Benjamin, all good speakers and very interesting people. So um, I did kind of what you're doing now, except that I think you, you have the archive up there. People can listen to any of your shows when they want, right, Ben? That's right. And I think you're doing something very valuable because if, if somebody can listen to a whole show about chess teaching or about chess books. By the way, if you wanted I mean, my regimen may not fit for everyone. I think some people need to study tactics harder. And, of course, I did at one time. Some, I think all of the people do need to at least try and know something about the openings they play. Like, I believe in concentrating on the same openings once you decide you like them. Okay, but, I mean, it, it can probably jump into something else which is related to self-improvement and study. Like, what are my favorite books? Okay, well, I do want to get to that, Fred, but I, there's one other topic I want to sort of uh, hit first, which is just, uh, and you mentioned John Watson, uh, one of my favorite guests, although I have a lot of favorites, I have to admit. Um, and when, when he came on Perpetual Chess, he talked about uh, the effects of aging on his ability to calculate. And he basically said that he generally felt like his chess understanding was better than ever, but he also felt like he was a little bit more blunder, blunder prone, especially in the later hours of a game. And that he wasn't quite as uh, as sharp um, at times. So I was just curious you know, in terms of uh, how your chess has evolved over the years. Uh, do you feel like I know that you play faster time controls, but do you feel like that's an obstacle? And do you feel like it's it's harder to remember opening theory than it used to be? Uh, and, and you know, questions along those lines. Like, do you do you feel the effects of aging in your your battle to continue to improve? Uh, well, the one word answer is yes. But um, now I have to be kind of relentlessly honest. I never believed, I, I believed that my problem always is calculating long variations. Uh, I see short tactics, I see shots, I see three, five, seven play pretty, but long variations I was never good at. And I grew up playing Walter Brown, Asa Hoffman, Bernie Zuckerman, and they could all calculate farther than I could, especially Walter Brown. And, uh, but I used to beat Brown all the time in the Rapids at the Manhattan Chess Club, I think with just short-range tactics. And then he got stronger. Um, so I would say I understand what John's talking about. It's possible, in my case, I never achieved my potential. And this is what I mean. There's a, there's a nasty sentence out there, and I can't remember what book it's from, but the sentence is, but the man that is will shadow the man that pretends to be. <laughs> And so I got to 2189 USCF, but never got over 2200. I, then I, I stopped playing for a long time, and it always kind of bothered me. I tell people, well, I was a chess master. Well, 
I believe I went over 2200, but it was never published in 1968 because they only published the rating list once a year, blah, blah, blah. But it was kind of lying to yourself. So before I started playing again, a little bit at the Marshall and then in New Jersey, I started playing in the New York City Bankers Chess League, and they have their own rating system. And I went from 1989 to, you're ready for this, 2256. Hmm. But it took me about four years. And I think at that time, I was, I, was, I was ready to play, to study, to take my lumps, to work at the board, to, to maybe achieve what I should have achieved uh, in the early 1970s, but, but I didn't. And you're right that the fast time controls helped me, oddly enough, because there was something called the World Blitz Chess Association, which was actually a FIDE rating, and I got up to 2309 in, 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 in what the, that rating system. It was Walter Brown's system. It was pretty well regulated. I think the highest rated player in the world was Delugi, followed by Kasparov. And um, so, I mean, I kind of knew, like, like the, 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 let's, let's just do it, USCF. Let's, that's the final thing to do. The Bankers Chess League ratings were pure. There were no floors. There were no inflationary rating points. There were no bonuses. There was no reason to sandbag. To get to 2256 there was about 2300 USCF. So I kind of knew I could do it then, but possibly also because I'm starting this, this task in my early 60s, this, uh, uh, um, what should we call it, journey. Uh, maybe it therefore it took me longer because I had lots of ups and downs. While I might, you know, I, I played, for instance, I am Dean Mippolito five times with three draws. And this, I heard this used to drive him crazy a little bit, but I always prepared for him and I'm always playing Kings Indians against his G3 stuff. And Dean and, knows his openings. Yes. And uh, I had several draws with Carl DeMelt. A uh, very strong player from Pennsylvania who also plays in New Jersey tournaments, and uh, occasionally would would beat somebody good, and or at least a high expert. So, but I would screw up. I would lose to strong kids. I would uh, try too hard to win. Really, turn down draws when I shouldn't have, and lose to 1,900, 2,000 players. So it took a, a long time. And what I would tell people out there, if you're over 50 or 60, don't quit. Keep coming back. It's a fight. It's a game. Uh, I do think that as everyone, from Karsten Hansen to Alex Yermolinsky in The Road to Chess Improvement, which seems to be everybody's favorite book, mm-hmm. insists you've got to study your own game. And you've got to do it first without an engine. You think you understand everything that should have happened and did happen, then give it to Fritz or Stockfish. Um, I'm told by a good friend of mine who plays at the Marshall Lawson that in the Wednesday and Thursday night tournaments, which are ones in open and ones in under 2,000, that many players, at least half a dozen, are routinely whipping out their smartphones after the game to see what they should have done. Yeah, and, and these people stay right at seventeen, eighteen hundred. <laughs> their lives, 
I've admitted before on air, Fred, I'm guilty of that sometimes. (laughs) Okay, it's okay. You can do it. It's a free country, but don't expect to get off your plateau without any gratification. I know know it's wrong when I do it. (laughs) I mean, maybe I'm lucky that I don't know how to do it. Right. But you you know what? Have you ever, I asked my friend on the board at the Marshall, have you ever seen a master do that? And he said, I don't think so. Oh, no, they do it. Uh, we're all human. I mean, like you say, a, a lot of us know it's wrong, but I mean, sometimes, you know, it's that feeling. It's like when you're trying to come up with, it's like when a fact you know is escaping you and you want to think of it, but at some point you just you just want to look it up. Sometimes if you had some position where you know there's something there and you were thinking about it and you burn, say, 15 minutes, sometimes when the game's over, especially if it's a fast, you know, like your, like the game 60 tournaments that you like to play, and if you have another round coming up soon, it might be that you just can't let go and you need to look it up. So I'm not saying it's right, but I certainly understand the impulse and I have, uh, I have fallen prey to it. I, I have strayed, I must admit. Well, all I can tell you is what I will do is I'll make myself a little crazy trying to figure out where did I miss the win. Uh, I'm, I'm particularly concerned where I think I had a, a great advantage and I, and I botched a good attack. Uh, less concerned about where I'm being clearly outplayed and I see where I usually can find out where my mistaken ideas were. And uh, I've been tempted to get get on the phone and say, can you give this to Fritz? But I haven't done it yet, I mean, to a friend of mine. So mm-hmm. uh, I <laughs> usually good. finally, at least to my satisfaction, think, God damn it, that's what I should have done. This looks really, really good. And then I'm more or less content, meaning let's say you give that position to Houdini and it finds some insanely great defense nine moves later and, and it's surviving into a drawing end game. I don't really care about that. In other words, at least at home, I found what I could have done, should have done, to make life difficult for you, my opponent. Okay, and Fred, when you're reviewing your games, if you do, if you are, say you you pull up a critical position that, you know, like the situation I described, as you try to figure out what you should have done, do you play through the moves on the board, or do you try to visualize, uh, like, as you would? Both. I, I used to be rigid. But I think sometimes it gets so complicated, it's, um, uh, I, I'll, I'll set it up on, I, I'll, I'll, I'll play through it on the board. I try and do it in my head. I'll tell you something, it's, it's shameful, but, but not shameful, it's honest. Uh, Saltus, who has a nice chess column in the New York Post, it's one of the few chess columns left in a major newspaper, you know, Ben? Yeah. Uh, it's gone, no column in the New York Times, Washington Post. Kavalik's gone, Los Angeles Times, Jack Peters gone. I mean, who's left that, you, you know? So Saltus always gives a, a position, a combination. He gave one a couple of weeks ago that was so hard that I set it up on the board. And I finally decided, he, he, this was two weeks ago, he, that there was, it was an attacking plan beginning with a rook lift, rook f6, and that eventually, there's no way white can, can, can survive. And it's really, I mean to ask Andy, I know this, it's about 12-ply. And he gives the answer next week, and he says, there, Rook F6 threatening, blah, 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 and Black is winning. And I'm going to tell him, I don't think you gave enough of the answers to the average guy. I mean, (laughs) I spent, setting him on a board, a diagram for me to solve, I spent probably 20, 25 minutes working it out. 
Wow. That's uh But 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 it, I'm not saying this to brag. I got frustrated. It's yeah. my ego's involved too. It's like wait a minute, Andy never you give something that's so hard I can't find it eventually. So it's interesting, you know. I mean it's maybe maybe the answer is you've got to enjoy doing some, some work on your game and as you say I have much more time than the average guy with, with, with three kids and a mortgage. Uh, but I will tell you one thing. I once had the, the three kids and a mortgage, too. And I still, I would, at night, more in those days at night, um, if there was no mech game on, I, I'd, I'd be looking at chess games. I, I enjoyed playing over chess games. Well, as a Mets fan, I'm sure that, uh, you know, you don't want to watch the game, so that gives you more time to study now as well. Oh, you had to say that, right? <laughs> As a Phillies fan, I had to get that in. Yeah, uh, so, I'm just. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, we won't. We've we... got a, we've got an international audience, so we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't babble about baseball too much. I know, I know. Well, can we get in one little blurb about that? Me moving my store, the, the uh, one that no, no, that yeah, the bu- your your book business is the next major topic I want to hit. So Fred's got over over two thousand books in inventory and. And was telling me uh, right before we recorded, you've been selling books since 1973. So I'd like to hear about the move. But why don't you tell us about about the beginnings of the business too, Fred? I mean, this was right after the well, relatively speaking, right after the Fisher Spassky match, right? So what was uh like? How did you get in the chess book business? Okay, well, that 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 was as it turns out coincidental. Uh, 1973, at uh, the beginning of that year, I was. Working, had been working at a bookstore that still exists in New York City, Argosy Bookstore. And they're at Midtown on 59th Street. How can an old and rare and used bookstore exist in such a location and pay New York City rents? Because they own the building. I worked for them for about three and a half years. They let me go because I was doing some book selling on my own. I think they thought I was taking their customers' names. I was not. I never, never took a name or a customer from them. Uh, they never told me why I was fired. I did collect unemployment for six months, and I opened my own used rare book business in a small office at 69th Street off of 3rd Avenue, a basement of an apartment building. There were five offices in that building, and they were all technically illegal, and we were all little mail-order businesses. Okay, I'm selling America, Americana and First Edition. I'm going broke. I, have, I had a small good collection of chess books. I needed to pay the rent. Two kids already. All right. I put out a list of early and rare chess literature around the end of, well, I started in the end of 73. So say this list actually starts in early 74. The list sells out then. Okay. That's a very good percentage for any kind of used or rare book catalog. Usually if you sell 50%, you're doing great. I gradually moved completely into out-of-print and rare chess literature. And somehow I made a living at it. This was before the Internet, basically doing catalogs and mail order and developing a clientele and getting want lists, lists of what we call the Zyderata out of them and selling both nationally and internationally. And then uh, in 1979, that building went co-op throughout all the businesses, and I moved to 11th Street and Broadway, 799 Broadway, which was the St. Dennis Hotel, built in 1854. Morphy stayed there in 1857 when he won the first American Chess Congress. Lincoln stayed there, I believe, in 1860. 
when the Lincoln-Douglas debates were held at Cooper Union. It's not a landmark. It is, hmm. was sold for $100 million last year. It will be torn down, and they will build a modern tech office building in its place. For anyone who knows New York City, this building is opposite the very famous Grace Church, which goes back to the, uh, I think, the 18th century. So I had to get out of there. Uh, as I wrote in the article for Chess Life in the June issue, uh, here I think being a chess player helped because I was used to tactical surprises and having to move fast. I looked all over my neighborhood known in in New York City as the East and West Village area is called the Gold Coast by Realtors. It's expensive. I found an office at 17th Street and Union Square West, which is basically an extension of Broadway. And the, my address is 41 Union Square West, and I am in Suite 718. My window faces north, and I'm looking right at the Empire State Building, a fantastic view. 12-foot ceilings, 170 square feet. I'm open 24-7. I have a website with listing books for sale, fredwilsonchess.com. Uh, I'm rarely up on Sundays, but if a serious collector wants to visit on a Sunday and makes an appointment, I can come over here and let them in. I've moved 2,000 books and a selection of vintage chess sets and a few old clocks. And I'm still in business. So do you have a do you have a prized book for sale right now? Like which um which one would you whether it's the highest price or the one that you think is the the most um you know the the you cherish that you'll have find the hardest well, letting go I'm, of when I'm, you sell. I'm, 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 it's getting harder and harder to get 19th century books. And one reason I got into chess teaching and run several chess programs which is frankly 60 70% of my income in the book selling is the rest is because with eBay, people are putting old stuff up themselves. And it's, it's, I think it, it, it's kind of hurting the rare book business in many ways. But my, my rarest book right now, but I'm holding it for a collector. <laughs> but uh, if, if he doesn't buy it, it's for sale. It's, it's a, a three books by William Lewis bound together in one volume. And it's a selection of the games of chess played at the Westminster Chess Club between Monsieur de la Bourdonnais and an English amateur. That was Alexander MacDonald. London, 1835, plus two other books by William Lewis. And they're all bound together in one book in quarter calf. And it's 300 bucks. And um, what the 1835 book is, is essentially the first world championship match book. Hmm. That's pretty cool. Uh, one, they beat McDonald, as you would know, Ben. Um, he's considered the first unofficial or de facto world champion. And they both died soon. And then the next really de facto world champion is Staunton, who beat another French guy, saint Amand, in a match in 1849. But uh, Le was recognized as the strongest player in the world after beating Alexander McDonald in, like, what was it, the immortal 88 games or something? So that's that's my rarest book right now. I once had an ed- first edition of Royal Lopez, 1561, which I sold for three thousand dollars. I don't have a copy of that right now. So how did you how do you find a book like that before you sold it? How, someone reached out to you, or how did you track it down in order to sell it? Um, recently, one of my old customers uh, wanted to to, to 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 sell some stuff that he had bought from me. Uh, 
in uh, the 1970s. And um, funny to see your old prices in books, you know? <laughs> I bet. And uh, so that's how I... I had like a whole series of, of, of old books that I recently sold uh, at the Chess Annual from 1856 by Charles Tomlinson. I sold for $150. I... Uh, I had a book, Science and Art of Chess, by a fellow named Monroe. I sold for $150. Nothing special book. He may have been the first guy to write about the accumulation of small advantages, which then became the famous Steinitz philosophy. Uh, by the way, that book by Monroe is up there from some guy on on, on uh, eBay uh, for $750. Okay. So, be careful, people, with Amazon and eBay prices on old and rare chess books. Do not believe everything you see. Okay? Ben, you know that, right? Did they understand that? Well, they might be better off sometimes checking to see if I have a book, because every day I see books up on Abe, Amazon, sometimes on eBay, standard OP, out-of-print books. Let's call them standard $20, $25, $30 books going for more money than I have in my shop or I have listed on the website. It's almost like people just believe that the only place to find anything is eBay or Amazon. But um, Okay, yeah, good to know. And listeners, definitely, if you're, if you're a listener and you're interested in chess books, I'll link to Fred's uh, list of his inventory so you can check out what he has and see if anything uh, piques your interest. Yeah, I will uh, warn people I'm a bit of a Luddite. I only take checks, money orders, or cash. I don't take PayPal or credit cards. However, if you call or email me and do you still have X for X dollars and I get back to you and say, yes, I will hold it. And as soon as your check arrives, it goes out in the mail. You know, if, if, if I don't know you and if it's for a ton of money, I may wait for the check to clear. If it's a $1,500 check, I'm not going to worry about it. Then life's too short. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, I've been doing business the same way for a long time. Uh, I certainly know how to pack and ship books. But people visiting New York, you would enjoy my shop because uh, you'll be able to browse through a ton of out-of-print, used, some old and rare, some new or new books in new condition, which are still not priced twenty nine ninety five, but might be 15 or $20 because I have various sources for getting books. And I, you know, if you see something at a brand new price, it's probably by me. Hmm. Like simple attacking plans, which you know, I recommend that. But even I sell that for twelve instead of fourteen ninety five. And okay, Ben, it's on Amazon for eleven ninety seven. Freaking Amazon, they're so tough to compete with. <laughs> well, for the three cents, folks, <laughs> you get it signed by me. Okay, yeah. Also, I bet I I could be uh I'm guessing you'd be willing to play a blitz game or two with anyone who pops in if things aren't too busy. If occasionally. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. It just depends how busy I am. During the summer, I'm here six days a week from noonish till 8, 8.30. During the school year, I, again, six days a week, Monday through Saturday, often open till 8, 8.30. But uh, during the school year, mid-September through mid-June, I'm often out except Wednesdays between 2.30 and 5.30 teaching, running chess programs in New York City, independent or private schools. And, okay. uh, so try and make an appointment during the school year. Otherwise, um, if I'm here, I'm open. Excellent. That's pretty simple. 
and uh, it's people who visited my old store 38 years with 11th Street Broadway. Now I'm at 17th Street and, and basically the corner of 17th Street and Broadway, really, but I'm on the seventh floor. The other address is 22 East 17th Street on weekends. Um, people who visited my old store saw a very crowded place. It was hard to browse. This was set up much better. It did not evolve. I planned this out like one of my recent games, Ben. Yeah, so. I, I'm really glad that you landed on your feet and found a new venue. I know in New York, uh, you know, real estate prices lucky. are insane. They, um, they asked me, can you give us two months security? Can you move in, you know, virtually right away? Yes, 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 yes. And the guy said, okay, you're in. So there's a storage loft that came, comes with the room that the former person who had been here 18 years uh, had built. So when you walk in, the first five feet are a lower ceiling because I have a ton of things stored up there. But the rest of the store is, oh, my current building is a relatively new building. It's 1896. <laughs> That's funny. It's um, the original yellow oak floors. Uh, I'm definitely, next time I'm in New York, Fred, which won't be... Uh won't be too long, I'm sure. Uh, I'm going to drop you a line and uh, try to come by. Well, oh, by the way, now that you're in New Jersey, I know that a lot of people listen to your show who are in the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania. Uh, you're, you're, you might, m many people listening would know this already. I run concessions at three of the most popular tournaments in New Jersey, one of them is most popular in the country. I bring used and out-of-print books to the U.S. Amateur Team Championship, the World Amateur Championship, President's Day weekend in Parsippany. That's a great, fun tournament. 1,200 players last year. Uh, close, I think closer to 1,300. They had to cap it. And the reason is low entry fee, I think $45 a player, six games, two games a day, no cash prizes. You're playing for trophies, medals. Clocks. People are there to play chess, so it's like the world's biggest chess club. There's no stress. It's like, have you ever been to the teams? It's oh, I love fun. them, yeah. I was actually going to go last year, but then uh, that was when it came up that my family was moving. So on the downside was I couldn't go last year, but the bright side is now that I'm like an hour away, I'll, I'll, I intend to the, go the quite often. The two tournaments that I think are fabulous. This, these are the only three concessions I run. I used to run a dozen a year when I was younger. But in Morristown, New Jersey, at the Morristown Hyatt, uh, my friend Noreen Davidson is the chief tournament director of the New Jersey Open. The Morristown Hyatt is in the middle of Morristown, a beautiful little city where you can walk all over the place, restaurants, you're not trapped on a highway. It's a great hotel. And, again, it's an optional, it's a six-round tournament. You can play six six-hour games, 40 and 2, sudden death 1, or you can play a two-game schedule. And the New Jersey Open lately, I think it had eight Grandmasters last year. It had 12 the year before. It has, it's like a mini international tournament for you to watch if you're not playing in the Open section. I'm the vendor there, but I think, I think it's a great stage. It's definitely the strongest state championship held in the United States last year and um, probably will be this year. And uh, the other tournament in Morristown is the U.S. Amateur Individual East. Again, 40 and 2, Sudden Death 1. Uh, it's held uh, Memorial Day weekend, Morristown Hyatt. 
And this is a fantastic tournament for people under 2,200. Uh, but, but again, people in New York, you can take a train to Morristown and walk three blocks to the hotel. You don't even need a car. But I'm, I'm telling this to you because now you're, you're relocated. Yeah. And, and you should tell all your Jersey people to support these three tournaments because um, they're really well run and they're enjoyable. Uh, also, uh, they have a great vendor. That was humor, Ben. <laughs> I'm not the only vendor at the teams. It's also Rochester Chess Center and the Chess for Less. So there's three of us covering equipment, software, brand new books, used rare and early and rare. So you actually have a huge selection of chess stuff at the, the team championship. Yeah, the amateur East in particular are definitely a, a sight to behold, and I would say worth traveling to if you're from, from out of town. It's just such a fun tournament. You can cut the tension with a knife in the last day of the World Open. You know what I mean. Yeah. And yeah. you're not paying two eighty five to play. You're paying $45. You're playing on a team. Everybody's there who really wants to play chess. You, they, yeah, you have a quite a, you have generally some grandmasters and some IMs, often with their students or they're on a team with friends like that. So uh, it's just the whole atmosphere is so pleasant. It's not the tension, not the pressure. Um, I mean, I played in it once, and if I wasn't a vendor, I would, and oh, I sponsor a, a team of my students who, who always play. But if I wasn't a vendor, I would play, but you can't do both. Right. <laughs> you can't play for 10 hours and, and, and sell for 14. Uh, that takes that's 24 hours right there. Okay, so Fred, I just have a, a couple more um, topics for you. One you mentioned earlier, and we started. You already gave a few chess book recommendations, but do you have any other favorites um, that you find yourself using for students or just like that most resonated with you? Okay. Um, way back in the beginning, Carson Hansen said his first chess book was My System. I kind of don't recommend that to people. I think it's a little tough to start out with, but he was a strong, very talented, motivated teenager, I think, when he grabbed the, co the copy and read it. Um, my first book that I read and enjoyed and got something from, and okay, I learned how to play at 10 or 11. I never cracked the book till I was 13 or 14. I won the best play game prize in the New York City Junior Championship of 1961, and my provisional rating was 1704. And the prize was given to me by Lombardi uh, over a game by Bernie Zuckerman because he said Zuckerman's game was false theory. <laughs> this is a true story. But the first book, maybe the only book I read up to that time, although I had played a lot of um, blitz chess with uh, at that by, th by that time, I had already playing Hoffman and Zuckerman and nickel pots at five-minute chess and losing a couple of doubles on a weekend because these guys were stronger than me. But I kept coming back, you know. And I, uh, the, the book, Masters of the Chess Board. Oh, know. yeah. I'm surprised that hasn't come up more. It's such a classic. And um, there's something I never forgot, and, and I'm, I'm going to read it to you. Uh, it's a game, Nimzovich Brinkman. It's on the chapter by Nimzovich. And Rady shows a position, Brinkman, Brinkman Nimzovich. Brinkman is white. He has more space. He has a pawn chain, b2, c3, d4, e5. Uh, he has no white squared bishop. All the bishops are traded. He has no pawn breaks. Um, and Reddy's comment is, I just never forgot this. 
Much profit can be derived from a study of this position. White is in control of more territory, and so one might think he has the advantage, but that is not the case. The real criteria to appraise closed positions is the possibility of breaking through. In general, the player who can move freely over greater area can probably place his pieces more advantageously, but that is not the case here. And thus, while White in this position, and he shows the diagram, has no possibilities of breaking through and controls more space, He's therefore limited to making waiting moves behind his wall of pawns. The second player, Nimzovich, has two possibilities of breaking up with the position with pawn breaks. Therefore, black alone, Nimzovich is able to take the initiative, and consequently, he is in the superior position. And it was just a contradiction of what's first obvious when you look at a position like, wow, white has more space. Then you see with all the bishops gone, it doesn't mean anything. Black's traded off his bad bishop. It's a French defense position. And it's it just somehow, it's just like, okay, chess, chess is not so simple. It, many years later, there was some kind of controversy, which I suppose has died down now, between John Watson and Jacob Agard over Watson's insistence that the modern players, which he would include Lasker, do something called rule-independent calculation. Have you heard of that? Ben? Yeah, John and I talked about this a bit when he was on. Okay, well, I, that seemed to upset Jacob Agard a lot. And yes, he writes very good books. Agard's books, for the most part, are really good. Uh, but, but I agree with John. One of the hard things in chess, and one of the enjoyable things, is the paradoxes, that things are not always what they seem. And so Masters of the Chessboard, it's a game collection. I still recommend that for people. I believe there's an algebraic edition. Published yeah, there's a new edition, and it's not expensive. It's like twelve bucks or something. Yeah, right, it's a great, it's right. a great book. Uh, uh, other books that I enjoyed, I can tell you, growing up, and I got Dober to reprint this. I was Dober's consultant for about thirty years. Chess and Morphia by Vinick by Emery Koenig, A Century of Chess Evolution, and it basically takes. Five opening systems, King's Gambit, Queen's Gambit, Royal Lopez, um, and uh, English opening, uh, and uh, one other system. Oh, it just takes four systems, Queen's Gambit, King's Gambit, Royal Lopez, English opening, and shows their development through complete, well-annotated games from 1850 to 1950. Now, curiously, Saltus wrote a two-volume thing for Ken Smith, and he wanted to call it Chess from uh, Bidvinik to Kasparov, and he meant it to be a, a, a sequel to Koenig's book, but Ken Smith changed the title to something I can't remember. But the Saltus, there's a two-volume work similar to this that goes from, like, 1950 to, to 2000, let's say, uh, by Saltus. as kind of an addition. But I love Koenig's book because he, he ex I got to figure out what people were trying to do in these systems. Um, another book that I enjoy, and this is a little bit blowing my own horn, but it's Simple Chess by Michael Steen. Has anyone recommended that? No, I don't believe so. It's a fantastic book about positional chess. It can be read parallel to My Simple Attacking Plans. The Dover edition's out there for nine ninety five, and yes, I'm the one who created the algebraic edition and reformatted it and maybe made 10 or 12 corrections, but it's a, it's a terrific book, Simple Chess by Michael Steen. 
and um, he, uh, I think at, at the, the end of, of my book, Simple Attacking Plants, Simple Chess used to be one of these, what you call, cult-following books, meaning it was a little paperback and a very scarce hardcover, and it was indescriptive, and it got a big reputation 10, 15 years ago, before the Dober acquired it on my suggestion. Um, it was going for little crazy prices. You know, the paperback would go for $20, $25. We're talking about a small book then. And it's just because it's so well-written explaining positional concepts. So the, the last thing I wrote in Simple Chess was I was quoting Michael Steen in an interview, and um, they asked him a question. Um, how did you come up with the idea of writing Simple Chess? And this was Malcolm Payne in the fantastic English magazine Chess, which is, it's, well, the best magazine in the world is, is New and Chess, but I, I think Payne's magazine is the second best. But at any rate, so Steen's comment was, Civil Chess was written with a view to try and articulate as best I could all the things I wanted answers to when I was reading chess books, and the answers weren't there. Subsequently, hmm. I discovered, having joined a mainstream profession, tax accountant, that when you go through training, you get the same syndrome in that the classical textbooks give you a lot of information, but never in the form of telling you what you actually need to know. Hmm. That's so, a great hook. <laughs> it's, simple Chess is a great book. That, that's the last line of my Simple Attacking Plans. It's probably not a great book, but it's a good book, and it, it got a rave review from Joel Benjamin in, in, in Chess Life in 2013. And um, There's a Russian edition out, amazingly. A Russian edition of Simple Attacking Plans. Is, is, I just got a copy from my publisher, Mongoose. You were talking about publishers in your last interview, and they left out the Mongoose Press. Karsten uh, may want to uh, investigate this, but the, the, he was talking about the different procedures that, uh, that the publishers approach and pay you different, mm -hmm. different amounts. Bruce Albertson and I got fantastic advances from Sterling, who no longer publishes chess books, and from Cardoza. So we would get like $3,000 advances, which will, spite and, which will shock many chess grandmasters. However, our royalties were a miserable 6%. Okay. But we got a tiny advance for one book from, 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 from Hannah Russell, but the royalties are 10%. Okay. For simple attacking plans, I was about to give up and, and kindle it when Landon Rosen, who owns Mongoose Press, got, got back to me and said, we'd like to do it. And I said, well, I got a $500 advance. I didn't even – and he said, yeah, sure. Mongoose gives 15% royalties. So let's put this together, Ben. Who, if you believe you have a book that's going to sell, who, who do you want to go to? I do not know what the royalty percentages are at Everyman or Batsford. I, I will guess that their advances are small. I have heard that, by the way. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say. I don't vast variety in, in, in payment forms and royalty uh, percentages. That's out there. Oh, Dover pays nothing. My Dover books I did for hire, I get nothing for them. I get nothing more for simple uh, simple chess that I I reformatted for them. I I probably wrote a book that sold eighty ninety thousand copies, one hundred one questions on how to play chess. You may have seen it. It's a little Dover thrift book. 
Uh, I did that for $1,000 and 500 copies of the book. It was a $1 thrift book. And are there royalties on that? or No. Oh, Dover okay. doesn't pay royalties. You, so you, no advance, no royalties? You sign a contract, you get half up front, half when you finish the book. It's called writing a book for hire. I advise people do not do that. Yeah. You got to have skin in the game. <laughs> but I was I was young. Yeah. So there was a recent edition of my simple attacking plans, and I've gone through it carefully. And they had one note to one of my games, an interesting note, and they made it a computer move so that Black can survive better than what he did in the game of mine I put in there. And um, other than that, there's no changes in anything I wrote. So I'm feeling very good. It means the Russian editor engined the book, if that's a verb, and he only found one thing to add a note to. That's very impressive. Well, I mean, just if we ha- we have time, other books I recommend really highly. My favorite game collection ever is John Nunn's edition of Paul Carras' Best Games. It's in two volumes. Someone uh, else recommended that. A lot of people that. over 40 or 50 remember the three-volume set, the early games of Paul Carras, the middle years of Carras, the later years translated by Harry Golombek. That has 75 games in three volumes, or one huge paperback. Golombek actually cut out 25 games from Carras' 1950 book, Stout Part T, 100 games. John Nunn put them back, and it was published by uh, Batchford and distributed by Ice uh, uh, Inside Chess. And it, it's out of print. I don't have a copy set for sale. I'm not, but I felt like Nunn's so good, he not only reprinted everything by Karras, but he added games up to the end of his life with notes by Karras. And I, I've always felt Karras's annotations uh, are the clearest, the most easiest, the most... They're somehow less severe than reading by dinner. Like other Karras books are Power Chess, all his chess-like articles edited by Bert Hockberg, um... Famous, the Art of the Middle Game by Karras and Kotov. The two Karras pieces are fantastic. And there's a, a book out there that's expensive. I'm not selling it. But some Swedish fellow translated Karras' book on the 1948 World Championship Tournament. And it's a beautifully produced hardcover. It's about 45 bucks if you can find it on Amazon or out there. And it's one of the greatest tournament books ever written. Remember, Karras came in third in that tournament. That was his great disappointment. But Vinick kept beating him, and there's a lot of controversy about whether he was throwing games to Vinick. I do not believe it. His wife has never said so. There was not a shred of evidence that Karras threw games to Vinick. But Vinick had his number until about the 1952 USSR championship. Sounds so. like you really know your chess history, Fred. Well, 72, I read a lot. <laughs> Very quickly, I love Chess for Zebras by Jonathan Rousen. I think that's, that's even better than The Seven Deadly Sins. I love the quotes he throws in. Yeah, his quotes are great. And he's uh, working on a book about chess. Although I think... Like, yeah, I he's... So. I mean, it's not... Uh, I think it's not... It's more about, like, chess and life sort of thing. Uh, so it's not strictly educational, but he's such a good writer. I'm just glad to, I'm glad he's working on something. Well, I think he gave up chess to become a lecturer in psychology, although I know he won the British Championship, and I think... He also tied for first in the World Open when he was uh, studying postgraduate work at Harvard. 
Yeah, I, I met him around that time. Oh, well, but... here's a little tip for you. Try and interview him. Of Why course, yeah, of course. Yeah, he would be amazing. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm waiting for the book, and then I'm going to pounce. <laughs> waiting waiting okay, for his book to come out. Besides chess for zebras, I love chess training pocketbook by Lev Albert. I remember that book. Split. Yeah, that's good. That's a fantastic book. I still go through it and do solving. I think one of the best books ever written on Tal is The Magic of Mikhail Tal by Joe Gallagher. Um, I think a very little-known book about a, a, called Attacking Technique by Colin Crouch. Uh, it's a fantastic book. It's hard to find. It's worth paying 15 or 20 bucks for uh, on the Internet or in my store. I don't have a copy for sale now. But Colin Crouch came up with a concept I will use again and give him credit for if I write a sequel to Simple Attacking Plants. And the concept is something called the three-piece rule. And the three-piece rule is actually very important idea um, in... It's just to conduct a successful kingside attack, you must be prepared to sacrifice while being careful to ensure that you have enough material and reserve to force checkmate. In general, a successful kingside attack will need at least three pieces participating, one to be sacrificed and two to give checkmate. And he then goes on to say it's usually a queen and two minor pieces or a queen rook and minor piece. But the three-piece rule is a good thing for people to keep in mind. Like, yeah. Yeah, it sounds it, like it would be useful for teaching. Uh, I'm already using it. I'm um, just trying to think. Oh, I will mention a couple of other books. <clears throat> In the Everyman series, they've done these uh, books about great players, you know, um, Kara's Move by Moves, Baskey, Bronstein, Carpo, blah, blah, blah. Um, I believe Kara's Move by Move and Spassky Move by Move by Zen and Franco are terrific. Really good. Okay, these are two of my favorite players. Uh, Zen and Franco did a tremendous amount of research, especially for the Spassky book. He's quoting from the Boleslavsky and uh, Bondarevsky book on, on the first match that Spassky lost to Petrosian. He's quoting notes from that Russian book. That's doing your research. Okay. Uh, he wrote a terrific book on Keras, and um, a fellow named Thomas Enquist, Swedish uh, I am, <clears throat> wrote a fantastic book on Leonard Stein. Leonard Stein. Stein is absolutely another one of my favorite players. Stein, Keras, Spassky, Fisher, Capablanca, Lasker. Those are probably my favorite players. I mean, I haven't forgotten Badinik, who Pandolfini, whenever I see him, uh, that's another one you want to do an interview with. Um, says, I learned more from Leonard Select Against than from any other book I ever read. So that's Pandolfini's favorite book. I would say in, in the Everyman series, I'm somewhat disappointed by their book on Bronstein. I thought it was kind of superficial and left out a number of really famous games. So I don't know. It depends on who's doing the book. So, um, but I like game collections. I think you can learn from them. And uh, I think that's how I picked up some pattern recognition and some ideas that just come into my head, like, I wonder if I can try this in this position, or why I'm, I might know what an important square is in a certain middle game. It's probably been through playing through games, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. 
Okay, well, Fred, this is an amazing list of uh, book recommendations. I think uh, in terms of the number of books recommended, you you are in second place only to uh, John Hartman, the book reviewer for U.S. Chess, who uh, who has read basically every chess book ever written. Um, so I'll uh, I've I've made extensive notes, and I'll put these all on the recommended book page on the well, Perpetual don't, don't Chess website. Road to chess improvement. Okay. Yeah. Oh, and, uh, unlike John Watson, who it's not his favorite instructional book, I do think. My sixty memorable games was a great book. Yeah, that's funny. He yeah, that you mentioned that you guys uh, have have had arguments about that. But uh, I think just as Fisher's being very honest, and and, the, and 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 Evans, if he did all the writing, Evans is quoting Bobby all over the place because I knew Bobby very slightly. Yeah, and he kind of talked like this, and the, 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 he had a very Brooklyn accent, and he and Brown sounded very similar voices. Do you but, have any uh, Bobby Fisher stories, Fred? I hung out with him somehow at the place called the Fleet House at 42nd Street in New York City. I'm probably, before I'm married at 19, so it's probably, I'm 17 or 18. And for whatever reasons, um, me, Bernie Zuckerman, a fellow named Henry Stockholm, who covered the Curacao tournament for the AP, who became a bookseller, but who passed away many years ago. I believe Asa Hoffman, James Gore, maybe... Jackie Beers is a funny friend of, of Fisher's, although Gore is a 2400 player who apparently is still alive and no one knows where he is. We all went on a walk, and Fisher walked incredibly fast. And Henry was heavy, so he had trouble keeping up. And it was huffing and puffing. And we're walking around like at 3, 4 in the morning around 42nd Street in Midtown, New York, and we end up at Horn and Hardat's cafeteria around 5 in the morning. Okay, and, and as we're going in, Fisher is... I don't know, he was talking chess with Zuckerman and Gore and kind of ignoring me, which is okay. I wasn't at their level. And um, I hear him, first of all, say, well, I read a book, and it was really pretty good, you know? It was all about palmistry. You know, there's something to that. All so about what? Bobby read a book on palm reading. Oh, okay. funny. Then okay. he goes into the cafeteria. He, he, he gets, like, about 60 nickels. You put nickels in a slot to get, get food in the cafeteria. He orders two complete breakfasts. He's eating like four eggs, two orange juices, I guess, six pieces of toast, lots of potatoes. I saw him eating two complete breakfasts at 5.30 in the morning. That's huh. my first. So how, was he already world champion or where, like no, when? No, no, okay. no. He was, it was in his U.S. championship. Okay. Uh, I also was present at the game where Asa often beat him in the Evans Gambit at 20-to-1 odds. Hmm. And Fisher had to fork over $100 to the spectators. <laughs> wow. And he pulled money out of all his, his suit, coat, jacket pockets. <laughs> and Asa played him another four or five games and then quit because now he had enough money to eat for several days. You know, food was cheaper in 1965, 63, 4. Yeah, so. huh. I mean, uh, they... they I was a spectator when Fisher won the Marshall Rapids tournament uh, with one draw to Walter Shipman and beat everybody else. Amazing. I mean, any I was, other, was, like, did, have you had famous chess players come into your store or any other encounters with, like, uh, legends? I think the one that most, and I guess we can end it on this, it's a little bit sad, but I think it's it's reflective of, of like, like, some 
not Carlson, but some of the younger players out there are kind of full of themselves. They're so convinced they would destroy uh, older players uh, that they, they would beat Ruszewski, they would beat Korsnoy, they would beat Spatsky. They were stronger than these guys. I don't believe it, by the way. Uh, but at any rate, uh, um, <clears throat> somehow, I believe it was the, the World Championship, the Carbo Kasparov match held in Midtown, New York, like on 40th Street in some hotel. And I had a pr- press pass covering it for a, a magazine, I think called Diversion. It was a magazine for doctors and dentists. I did write an article on it, which was called Luck and Unluck which is what Tao said both players had much luck and unluck. Hmm. And uh, he said that to me. But ha- where he said it to me was funny. Jinji somehow got Tao, who was smoking like a stack and looked very unwell, who was there as a journalist, and a bunch of other people, and he took us all out to dinner. Now, for, um, I, I remember I wouldn't let Jinji pay for me, just because I was always not cashing his checks at, at jazz tournaments and stuff. But I was sitting next to Tom, and he's drinking black Russians. He's eating no food. He's smoking <laughs> like a stack. He, he doesn't look good. But I did ask him, I said, recently, uh, wasn't Kasparov, but somebody on the Soviet Olympic team said that, uh, you know, our team, of course our team today is much stronger than teams of the past, and I said, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, Michigan, can I call you? He said, absolutely, and I said, is that really true that the, the teams that they fielded this year is that much stronger than when it was like you, Spassky, Bozinic, Keras, Geller, Petrosian? Were they stronger? And he looks at me and says, "No, they were, they they are weaker." And then he, with a, a gleam in his eye, a sparkle, he, he he looks at me and smiles and says, "And so am I." <laughs> Isn't that a cool story? Yeah. yeah. But uh, no, they were not. I I I get, tell you what, the, the, even 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 with Kramnik. I, I don't think the the Russians now are fielding a stronger Olympic team than than the one I just mentioned that had talent. Well, and not to mention the Americans now are are fielding quite a team. Well, I mean, we are the favorites, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, probably. Can't wait for it. That's for sure. Oh, um, I think it's fabulous. I just find wish we could find a. I I always felt, and I don't understand it. There's some dis. Prejudice against chess and the American media that I don't get when you and I both know that tens of millions of Americans know how to play. Yeah. So, like, you'll never hear on the news at night um, Sam Shanklin in a surprise upset won $40,000 on the US, U.S. chess champion, over three people rated 100 points higher than him, and, and in the list of the top ten players in the world. They could say, what? Fifteen seconds to say that. Do you ever hear that on the eleven o'clock news? No, sadly. Don't but, you think of, some people would like to hear that? Yeah, I do. Well, we have to work towards it, Ben. Yeah, well, I think it's you know you've you've 
You've seen the evolution of chess uh, over you know your time in New York. Um, I, do you feel like things are moving in the right direction? Yes, scholastic chess is exploding. Uh, the party line among us teachers, which I believe is chess enhances critical thinking skills. And I would say both for children and adults, really the, the, the greatest benefit you can get from chess is you will learn that you should think before you act, which well is said. probably why our current president doesn't play chess. <laughs> right. Okay, well, Sorry, I, think... I had to throw that in. If pro-Trump people don't want to buy books from me, that's fine. That's, <laughs> I'll, I'll live. And if you want to buy books from me, that's fine, too. It's a free country. Yeah. I... <laughs> well said, Fred. Okay, well, Fred, this has been great. Uh, I really, really appreciate your sharing all your perspective, and it's inspiring the the strides you're still making in your chess game. So I look forward to when you crack twenty. Like you said, your two primary goals, as you mentioned in Chess Life, to crack twenty three hundred and to make it to how many years for your business? Uh, Fifty consecutive years. But I think that that's going to happen before I crack twenty three hundred. But thank you very much, Ben for having me on your show and maybe we can do it again sometime. yeah sounds good to me and thanks for joining me Fred you're welcome thank you too special shout out to Geert Vanderveld for supplying the perpetual chess intro music I also want to thank everyone who supports the podcast that includes people who tell their friends about the show people who write a positive review on their podcast platform like Apple Podcasts but most of all to those who've donated to support the show. I spend a lot of time doing it, probably about five hours a week, and even though I love the work, it can be hard to find the time. So I want to give special thanks to my Patreon and PayPal partners, and this list is getting a little bit long, but that is a great thing. That's what keeps the show going. So, special thanks to Adam Ralph, Adam Vrancouge, Adrian Gutierrez, Andre Krizdwa, Alex Pejas, Brian Mullis, Carl LeBons, Chris Wainscott, Chad Hilton, Christopher Wood, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Chris Flanagan, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Naylor, Daniel Schaefer, International Master Elect Donnie Ariel, Frank Tortoris, Gary Andrews, Greg Shahadi, Harish Srinivasan, I hope I said that right, Harish, James Banastia, Jennifer Valens, Jeffrey Martello, John Fernandez, John Jernigan, Jen Shahadi, Jens Green, Jerry Wells, John Thompson, Johnny McMenamin, Katerina Nemkova, Kelly Palmer, Krishna Gopalakrishnan, Laura Belyavsky, Lorraine Dore, Matthew Passi, Macaulay Peterson, Matthew Tedesco, Nathan Webster, Pascal Charbonneau, Paul Sweeney, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Randy Temple, Ricky Grahalva, Rob Lazorchek, Robert Steiner, Tatyav Abrahamian, Thomas Stonix, Thomas Chachenko, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Todd Bryant, Tony Rotella, Victor Vrankul, Zhao Cheng, and Jivko Stoyanov. Thanks, everyone. I'll catch y'all next week. Sports Social Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today 
at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.